from the West Branch Studios in Davidson, North Carolina. Welcome to Dump the Clutch with your host, Brad Zimmerman. Okay, so this episode of Dump the Clutch, I've done a few that were uh, politically motivated with the, the Davidson uh, City Council. So today we're going back into motorsports and uh, I've wanted to have two people on the show. You have been one of them. So uh, John Olgeen, please introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, um, my name is, uh, well, first of all, thanks, Brad. Um, I'm no problem. Looking forward to doing this. And uh, again, my name is John Olgeen. I'm the I, I actually I um, just started a new company called uh, JO Sports Strategy, and I am looking to basically consult with sports entities uh, across all sports. My background is with um, pub, both public relations agency, the LA Dodgers, and then with Chip Ganassi Racing for the last sixteen yeah. years. And so before we get into the professional side, because I think me and you uh, actually come from Southern California, but we're both opposites from our family size. So you come from a very large family and I'm an only child. So can you take everyone back to the beginning and kind of tell us about your upbringing, where you were born and kind of how you got to a sports doorstep? Sure. So I grew up in a small town in Southern California, as Brad, you would uh, appreciate, and a lot of people in racing know, um, it's called Barstow. And it is a little tiny hole in the wall town in the middle of the Mojave Desert. If you sneeze while on the freeway, you will blow right past it. No, no (laughs) doubt about it. You know, we affectionately joke that the best view of Barstow is in your rear view mirror. Um, But I saw family there, so I I say that with tongue firmly planted in cheek. but uh, big family. I'm one of eight kids. I'm the seventh of eight, and um, didn't have a lot. My father was a, a truck driver uh, for the Marine Corps Logistics Base, which is one of the the two or three big um, enterprises in Barstow that made Barstow kind of a, a place on the map. And uh, again, the seventh. But I was always a sports guy from moment one, and I was really the the. Fourth boy, and we have four boys and four girls, so I'm the youngest boy, and only the the boy that's uh, a little older than me, Michael, we were the only two that were in the sports out of the eight. And so we were very close because of that. But um, but again, grew up in a big family, not a lot of money, um, and was the first one to, I think, really attend high school with the anticipation I'm going to college. And, and it was funny because my parents didn't emphasize grades or anything. They just... It was like get a high school degree and when you finish high school you go get a job and when i made it very clear that i was going to college i know my mom had said a number of times well, wait 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 college is for rich people and so you know again growing up in this big huge family i don't i don't recall ever having clothes or whatever that were mine first you know they they, they <laughs> right. went down the went down the line and you know i'm hispanic and catholic so that, that's a, <laughs> that's a making for a big family and uh, my parents only um, spoke Spanish when they um, when they moved to Southern California. Or actually, that's not true. A little, they learned um, English while they were in elementary school, and but grew up in New Mexico. And um, were I mean, my father only went to the eleventh grade, and my mother went to the eighth grade. And um, they expected us just to be good people and work hard. And and I think that was a, a really actually a very good. They were really good church going people who who led by example more than 
they weren't philosophers by any stretch. Right. And I would definitely classify you as very outgoing. Uh-huh. Do you think growing up in the family that you did uh, helped uh, contribute to that? Or do you think you were outgoing from the second you, you came into the world? Um, I think that, you know, when you're in that big of a family, you learn to jump in and, and, and converse because if you don't, you won't. I mean, (laughs) we always joke the only, the only rule in engagement in our family when we have a get together is that you can't speak unless three or four other people are already speaking. I mean, (laughs) and not only that, you have to speak louder than everybody else. So no, I think it definitely contributed to the fact that I'm relatively outgoing. And then, so you graduated high school and you ended up going to Redlands? No, actually, or, okay. I, I ended up uh, graduating high school and I applied. And again, this is, it's funny because I, I didn't, I had no older brothers and sisters that were, had gone through the college process. I had a brother who was already in junior college. And so they couldn't really give me a whole lot of advice on what I should be looking for. Although I have a, uh, the one brother that's a, that's a little bit older than me said, you ought to go to UC Santa Barbara because it's on the beach. <laughs> Never thought that I should probably visit schools. Mm-hmm. And so I applied and got into UC Santa Barbara. And I applied to Redlands only because on our football team in high school, we had a guy who, who or a couple of guys who went to the University of Redlands, played football there, would come and help our football team. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe if I want to play football, I'll, I'd, um, I'll apply to Redlands too. And I got accepted to both. I went to UC Santa Barbara for a year. And two things I recognized that it wasn't a place for me. It's only because, one, I still wanted to play football. And two, they didn't have a real business major at the time. And I don't know if they do now, but all they had was econ and accounting. So I transferred my sophomore year to the University of Redlands and played football there for three years, uh, my last three years. And then you got a master's, uh, you came across to the East Coast, tell a bit about that. Yeah, I did. Um, well, so I was really wanting to work in sports and I remember finally getting a hold of somebody that worked for the Dodgers, his name was Tommy Hawkins and he was a former Laker and a play-by-play guy, whatever, but he was the head of communications. And I got a hold of him and one of the things that he told me is that I don't have any background working in sports. So he said, you know what a lot of people are starting to do now, and this is before sports marketing or sports um, business programs were the thing like they are now. He said a lot of people are getting um, sports marketing degrees or masters. And so that was what drove me to decide to get a masters. And I uh, ended up going to the University of Richmond in Virginia, the Spiders. And it was one of only five or six really good programs in the country at the time. Now there's tons of them. And so I went to the University of Richmond and uh, got my master's there. And did you always know once you finished school, you'd come back to California? No, but I, I, from, I don't know if I, when I was, I was young in college or at the end of my high school years, I read a book that was about the hundred best companies to work for. And the Dodgers were listed as one of those hundred best companies. It had nothing to do with sports. It was just a, a great company to work for. And I wasn't even a huge baseball fan, but I was a huge Dodger fan. And I was really a bigger football fan than anything. But I just got in my head I wanted to work for the Dodgers. So when I went to grad school, I remember in my interview, he asked me what I wanted to do, the, the, the dean of the school, and I said, um, or of the sports management program. And I told him, I want to work for the Dodgers. And he goes, whoa, that's big. That's, that's bold, you know? Right. And um, so sure enough, I ended up getting an internship uh, with the Dodgers. But it, it's kind of funny, just as a, as a side story, 
how I ended up with that internship. So I was, I was writing, and this is back in the day when you were actually doing typewriters and, <laughs> and sending actual letters. Right. Um, and I was trying in every department, any department, I wanted to work for the Dodgers. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Huh. I got rejection letters from every VP or director basically within the Dodger organization. And I thought, you know what, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So instead of trying to storm the front door, I decided, you know, maybe there's a side door I could go in. And so I decided that maybe I ought to, instead of trying to get hold of every vice president and director of every department, I should maybe start with somebody lower level. And I did. And I found a guy who was willing to talk. And I told him I wanted, I needed to interview somebody for a, pro, for a, a program that I was doing in school. And I was going to be back in LA in December. Would he be able to spend 15 minutes with me. Well, he said yes, and 15 minutes turned into probably an hour and a half. And by the end, you know, he's, hey, John, do you know we have internships here? And this is all I've been trying to do for the last year. And, you know, kind of the coy guy that I am, I'm like, no, you <laughs> no, do. And, yeah. uh, and ultimately, I got an internship without ever actually applying for it or going through an interview process. And so what was the internship in? It was actually in their public relations department. Okay. So, so that made you a PR person. So no, that's, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's what, what ended me or put me into the PR realm was doing that. Yeah. And I think the, but I also had a very strong working knowledge of public relations because my brother has owned a PR firm since, um, you know, boy, uh, he's worked in PR and ran a PR firm from the time he graduated. Uh, we ended up ultimately, he was the one who was in junior college. We ended up graduating like a week apart and he went right into public relations. So I knew what it was about. Okay. And I think um, it, the time while I was in the Dodgers PR department, when I was l younger, I kept thinking, God, I, I know there's other ways we can do some of the things that we were doing. Yeah. So, And so on, on that same thread, did you join a department with just a lot of people that have been there for probably the majority of their career and you were kind of the new kid coming in? Or what was the, the chemistry and culture like when you got it? it? Well, and, the, and what year was this roughly? Um, this was roughly 91. Okay. And um, the, yeah, everybody had been there for a long time. And okay. it's relatively small at that, at that point. I mean, I think that when I started with the Dodgers, there was only four people that were vice presidents and the president. So there were only five people that were VPs or above. Yeah. And then it was directors and then lower level people than that. And I think when I left, you know, some 15 odd years later, I think we had about 28 or so that were VPs or above. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like Bank of America. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, they, there used to be just a kind of a running joke that all decisions were made on a, on a round of golf and a fifth of scotch, you know? So. <laughs> and so you were there 15-ish years? Yeah. Well, but I left in that, um, in the middle of that to go work and open. My brother had had a, uh, as I said, a PR firm okay. in San Diego and he wanted to expand. And so I expanded that to Los Angeles yeah. and we opened a Los Angeles branch. And so I worked with a few four or five big clients, brought some in, um, with, I uh, had Easton sports, um, which had Easton hockey and Easton, um, baseball. And we worked with the guitar center and we worked with the John Wooden award and uh, a few others. And, uh, working for a team or a single brand, as opposed to working for an agency, what are some of the quick pros and cons with both of those from a PR standpoint? Well, I think with one brand, you, you obviously get to focus on one brand. Yeah. You know, you're not wearing a bunch of different hats with a bunch of different brands and each brand does things slightly different. Yeah. So I think that is the 
I guess the easier part of working for a team or a brand, um, but it's also exciting to work with multiple brands yeah. and, and it to be different every day and, and have um, contributions in a lot of different ways. Yep. And so you were with your brother for a few years? Yeah, for- just a little less than two years. Okay. And then the Dodgers called me back and said, okay. please, if you come back, we'll let you do whatever you want okay. in creating the department. So uh, I had a great boss. His name is Derek Hall. He let me do whatever. He's incidentally the, the CEO of the Arizona Diamondbacks now. And he said, you could do whatever you want. I trust you. And so he and I talked it over and I told him this is kind of what I want to do. And, and it's great when you have a boss who says, go do it. Right. You know, right. absolutely. So I created a structure in a department with no names. This is, these are the types of roles that I want, but they had people there. And then I let everybody that was there just tell me what they were interested in interviewing for. And we filled it in that way. Some loved it and took jobs and others thought they should be higher than what maybe I was offering and they left. And so, um, it, it turned out to be a really good exercise and, and really the big difference that I made there, I think, or at least the first thing and was maybe one of the first few to do it was to create um, a complete proactive role that was about pitching the Dodgers and especially to non-endemic media. Um, All of the PR people were required to pitch to the endemic media. So, and then this one other person was solely external non-sports. Huh. Okay. So I want to come back to that a little bit, but just to keep the path going. So how do you end up leaving the Dodgers and going to racing back on the East Coast? How, what, what does that process look like? Well, so I was there and had the luxury, I guess, of, of working through four different administrations of the Dodgers. Um, and that started with the O'Malley family and Peter O'Malley. And my, my first job, my first full-time job after my internship, I, I worked directly for Peter O'Malley. I kind of created the Dodgers archives, which is a long story anyway. And I worked directly for him for a couple of years. And then, um, then, then I ended up in the PR department full time. Well, the O'Malley sold in, I believe it was 98. And, um, then Fox came in and they ran it for a little bit, but then they brought in the third regime, which was Bob Daly, who was the former CEO of, of Warner brothers. Mm-hmm. And he ran it for, I guess four or five years, and then um, near what well, I guess it must have been 2004, they sold it to the McCork family, which was the um, uh, people from developers from Boston. And so through all those <clears throat> regimes, I, I enjoyed it. But that last two years with the McCourts, I, I think they struggled getting their sea legs under them, and they were, I, I think, working hard to try to understand. PR and the media and how it works in conjunction with the teams, but it was taking a bit longer with them. And it was a tough couple of years for me. And so near the end of the second year with them there, I was thinking, and they'd gotten rid of a lot. I mean, if we had, I'm going to make up the numbers because I don't know them exactly, but if we had 250 people, they had probably gotten rid of about 150 of them, you know, just through bringing in people who wanted their own people, which I get. And so I always assumed at some point I was going to get let go because I've always, you know, I think you want your own PR people that you can trust. So near the end of the 2005 season, they were there in four and five, at the end of the five season, four, we made the playoffs five. We were, we were just a mediocre team and uh, myself, and the manager, Jim Tracy, and the 
general manager, Paul DePodesta, who's the Moneyball guy, we're sitting in Jim's office kind of lamenting about which one of us was going to get fired first. <laughs> well, end of the season comes. Always a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, well, we were actually, you know, we yeah. knew it was coming. Yeah. So the end of the season comes on a Sunday, the Monday, uh, right after Jim Tracy gets fired, the manager. The following Monday, I get fired. And the following Monday, Paul got fired. So we were all right, right. I guess. Just we we're two weeks apart. Right. And um, so that's how it started where I left the Dodgers. And I, and I bring that up because I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not, I didn't do anything to get fired. It yeah. wasn't for cause or anything. Yeah. It, it was just like they wanted their own people. And I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. And so, um, and I think people can learn from that, that it's not the end of the world right. to, to, to get fired. Yes. And so... Anyway, um, I, uh, no joke, maybe um, less than a month later, I got called from a headhunter um, in North Carolina. Well, the headhunter, um, I, I don't remember where the headhunter was from, but the, the job was for a job in North Carolina. My wife and I had already talked about places we would like to move, and, and Charlotte was one of them. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, be the Panthers, be the Panthers, you know, or whatever, because uh -huh. I'm a big football guy, whatever. And when they finally told me that it's Chip Ganassi Racing, look, I've never been to a race before or anything, but I tell you what, there was a couple of things that really impressed me about them. Other than the fact I thought their leadership was was smart and and I had great conversations with them, but one thing they did right away was they said, we want your wife to come out too. Huh. And that meant a lot to me, and it certainly meant a lot to her that yep. they cared what she thought. Yep. And then the second um, thing was... When I interviewed with Chip, we, we had a funny conversation. He says, how much do you know about racing? And I said, I got to be honest with you, Chip. I don't know anything about racing. I don't know Richard Petty from Tom Petty. And, <laughs> and Chip laughed. And he's like, hey, look, I know what everybody in racing knows. I, I, I need some outside perspective. So I really liked that about Chip. I like the fact that he wants to be innovative and he wants to bring in smart people to, to help, even if they don't have the experience that, uh, of the industry because he thinks they're bringing in something from the outside. Right, right. And so that process, the winding and dining process to getting you to come over, what did that look like? How long did that take roughly? Honestly, it was relatively quick because it was probably four or five conversations with the, um, a guy who now is with, um, who's the president and CEO of the uh, Miami Dolphins, Tom Garfinkel. Yep. And we talked a ton on the phone and we just got along really well, really quickly. And then they invited me out. And then from that invitation out, it was, I was made an offer. So I left the Dodgers in, in middle of October. I made contact with them probably in the middle of November. And I think they made me an offer in January and I started at the Daytona 500. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So you were hired on, what did you start? Like a VP of? I was VP of communications, communications. solely PR at that time. Okay. And so as of last month, uh, with the uh, the folding of Chip Ganassi Racing on the NASCAR side in the Charlotte office turning into track house, yep. you were there for roughly how long? 16 years. 16 years. So your titles during that period, uh, what what did that look like? Yeah, I you know I went in the PR realm. I, I was there and I, I moved up to SVP of communications. Yeah. And then I started taking on more jobs as we either people left or we got rid of people or whatever yep. and ended up taking on marketing. And then I, at some point I ended up taking on sale or uh, actually it was first, um, um, activation or the, um, account management and yep. then sales as well. Yep. But knowing full well that we, we needed to hire a, yep. an actual salesperson at some yep. point. So, uh, full disclosure, I started there. I started with Chip Ganassi in, uh, uh, June of 
2010. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew zero about PR. That was not my responsibility, but I just didn't know anything about it. And uh, although at one point, it seems like we had teams in every series imaginable, um, we were a very lean team. And whether I wanted to or not, there was just a lot of osmosis and learning and what was going on. So um, with your uh, traditional sports background, your motorsports background, with those put together almost 30 years, how would you define as of today what, what sports PR, what a sports PR person should be and what, what does that role look like in today's world? Well, add two more things to that, yeah. though, because I also had the agency experience. Yeah. So I was able to see what traditional PR was like and be a part of that. Yeah. And also I had big brand experience in working with the PR groups from Target and Energizer and Texaco and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so I, I think it gave me a much more broad understanding of what PR could look like and should look like. Yep. And I think that the, in general, in sports, and this may not be f completely fair to everyone because there are some very, very smart communications people in, in um, uh, sports, yep. unequivocally. Yep. But I think the biggest thing that tends to happen is that PR people in sports become reactive there and reactive is really the doing all the stuff that comes at you without you having to do anything. And it's like, hey, we traded a pl for a player, you got to do a news release. We signed a sponsor, you got to put out a news release. Yeah. That's you're not creating that. You're 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 creating the news release, but you're not doing yeah. it. Other than somebody's asking you to do yeah. it. A player got in trouble with the police. We need a press <laughs> no, release. Yeah, no, no doubt, a statement. Right, right. A statement. Um, <laughs> and then, and then there's also a lot of other things that that contribute to I think being reactive. It's you've got a sexy product. Everybody wants a little bit of that product, you know. So you're not you're not having to work really hard to get people to cover your sport. Yeah. So therefore, what you end up doing is you end up being extremely busy but not always productive. So phone rings a lot. People are asking for, hey, can I get comment about this? Can I speak to that person? Uh, hey, you got to write this news release. Hey, you got to write game notes for the, for the game tomorrow or the race tomorrow. And um, what I think happens is that you forget that being proactive is the single biggest piece of, of communications. And there's a saying in sports, well, no, in PR, I guess, not just sports. If you don't tell your story, somebody else will. And chances are you're not going to like the way they tell it. Yep. So how do you remedy that? You go tell your own story. You go out and actually look for places to tell your story. And, and your story is not only your story about the organization, but it's your story about the players. And you, you want to get the fan, the reader, whoever, to understand your athletes better. And if they understand your athletes better and what they do off of the racetrack or off of the field, I think they understand the organization better. Yeah. And so it's, it's imperative that the PR people are actively going out and trying to tell their story. And, and with that comes, you have to, to work with the executive team on what are our team's main message points and we want to make sure we weave those into anything we're talking about yeah. you know and so it could be our main message points are we want to win on the field we want to create a fan-friendly environment and we want to be trusted partners in the community i'm making that up yeah, yeah. 
But so every, whether it's a player, whether it's an executive, and if they're doing an interview, and it could be about something that happened in the game negatively. And it's like, oh yeah, I understand that question, but I just want to tell you though, I want to make sure fans know we are doing everything we can to make this um, a, a winning product on the field for them. You know, And anyway, there's ways that you could use those messages, no matter what the question is, um, to your advantage. And does your approach change based on a franchise sport as opposed to a sponsorship sport? Not even a little bit. I mean, the only difference is that in racing, you the, the, the partner is almost primary. I mean, they are your first um, goal is making sure they look good and that whatever it is we're doing follows some of the goals and, and objectives that that partner has. Yeah. So you're wanting to do everything you can to promote the partner, even before your own team. The partner is a big deal. And that's one of the things I always liked about Chip. I mean, we don't even, as you could tell in the conversation, I'm not even using sponsor, we use partner. Right. And um, and I think that uh, that's the big difference. In, in, in a stick and ball sport, it's definitely the brand, the, the brand of the team. And in racing, it's definitely the brand of the, uh, yeah. of the sponsor. And is a good PR person, uh, is that teachable? Uh, or, or, and or what skills would you look for for a young PR person coming in? It's certainly teachable. Um, but there's one thing that is probably a little bit less teachable, and, and it's the number one skill. And to me, the number one skill for a PR person, but I think it could be said for a salesperson, a, a marketing person, anybody, and, and I'm going to say this, and it's, and it's going to sound so nebulous and so undefined, but it's that they get it, that they, they get the environment that they're in, no matter what environment they're in. Mm -hmm. And if, it's, if it is, I'm put in this crisis situation, or I'm sitting here with five writers, or I'm over here with a sponsor, they understand what the environment is and how they should best use that environment. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not easy. It's, it's easy to see... If somebody is a good writer, if they hand you their writing samples, or if they're a very good speaker based on the conversation you're having, this is an intangible that's harder to, to tell. Mm -hmm. And and you honestly, you, you get a feeling for it, but until you start working with them, you, you, you really can't know it. There's a lot of people that you could say, hey, Tom, go do this, and Tom will go do it. And then when he's finished, he'll stop and he'll turn around and go, okay, now what do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. Which is fine, I mean, that's okay. And you tell them to go do something else, and then I'll finish it, and they'll go, okay, now what do you want me to do? But what you really are wanting, I think, is somebody that stops, or they finish, they stop, and they go, hey, is it okay if I, what do you think if, have you guys ever thought of, those are the people that, boy, if you find them, oh, you got to keep them, yeah. because they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah. Um, okay, so then another question, which I think separates nicely from the Dodgers to Chip Ganassi. You started with technically probably no social media in existence, mm -hmm. and you ended up with on the verge of Web3, and we're going into the metaverse. Uh -huh. uh, the difficulty and or uh, the benefit of having more tools at your disposal to communicate your message uh, did you always try and stay on the front end of social media or were you just kind of in the moment trying to use it as best you could? Um, I think yes and yes. I, I think that having smart people around you that could help advise, you, you were one of them, I, honestly. You were, you were far more on the cutting edge of that than I was. But I think it's recognizing 
what the opportunities are with that, which is when, when I started in PR, you really have two main constituencies and a, and a, and a third that is subsequent to those. But the, the main two constituencies are your, your print and your broadcast media. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're going to be the conduit to your third, which is the fan, obviously. Yeah. Well, with social, like pff, the globe has shrunk. Now stakeholders are everywhere. And you could speak directly to them. You don't necessarily need the media to get to them. Right, right. And so, oh, and another important uh, stakeholder are your employees. Because all of your employees are either, can either be ambassadors or they could be detractors. And they have platforms to talk about it. There's even, I mean, there's a cottage industry of places like Glassdoor and Fishbowl where you could just go on and complain about your company. Right. That, that's how Glassdoor started. Right. And um, and I think that if you recognize that, then you have to do as much as you can to create an environment where the what you do is, I'm sorry, the how you do it is every bit as important as the what it is you do yep. for your employees. Yep. Yeah, I, um, uh, so you know, get, getting back to how I, I had no knowledge of PR. I didn't even know how it worked. But I guess the one thing that we both tripped up on that was positive is that I think uh, PR is, when we were at Chip Ganassi, PR seemed to be the pulse of the team. There's, there's stuff engineers can do. It's, it either makes the car slower or faster. The driver either wins the race or doesn't win the race. There's very black and white, finite things. But I think what I saw was that uh, the PR department as a whole became the pulse of the organization. And it became like uh, how we behaved, what the vibe was off of the team. Um, and I think that was critical to a lot of different departments, including HR. Because mm -hmm. like when you go hire people, you kind of have an idea of what type of person you're looking for. And I think some of that was dictated from just the, 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 the current vibe of the environment of, of the team. Well, I think you, you hit on something that's pretty interesting because the internal piece the internal communications, I mean, right. I, look, I used to spend probably when I was with the Dodgers, 90% of my time. Well, it, that was, it was evolving then, but I, I would say probably 75 to 90% of my time was all on external. Yep. It's media, media, media. Yep. Well, now I'm probably 50, 50 internal and external. And the internal piece is, is vitally important. And what PR, if done well, I think, PR is a barometer for an organization because if somebody comes to me with a cr about a crisis that we're dealing with and if I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I don't know, we're, and, and I'm frazzled, right. it gets them frazzled yep. and they think, oh my God, this is a big, big deal right. and it causes angst among the employee base. Yep. And part of my job is to calm, I think, keep people calm. Like, yep. no, we're, we're good. I, and I think part of one of my strengths is my highs aren't very high, my lows aren't very low. Yeah. I, I'm pretty even kill, and I don't know. I mean, look, some of you guys that have been there, uh, had been there a long time with me, might be able to say they s have seen me extremely angry. I, I just don't get yeah. worked up about almost anything. Yeah. But I think that's important for my role yeah. as a, as a communications person. So to your point of being a barometer or being uh, the pulse, I, I think that's by nature and, and it should be that they keep people calm and it, it, it would be hard to imagine a really high strung PR person. <laughs> That'd be terrible. Right. <laughs> but you know, like I think that PR and I didn't know this ahead of time and, and I don't know how much you 
maybe we're going down that path, but it really helped me on the sales side. Whether that was new sales or taking an existing partner and trying to grow their particular program through new ideas. Brad, I'm telling you, again, you're hitting on something that's extremely important, and that is that if a PR group, PR executive, isn't thought of as a vital cog in an organization, they're not doing something right. Right. Because it should be the glue that all these departments use, like, in keeping all these departments together and working together. Yeah. And, and a lot of times it becomes the gate and it becomes the, a wall. I think that the, the PR people kind of at times can get big heads because they control, especially if you're at a stick and ball team, but you control two things that everybody wants. You have control of, or access to the players and access to the field. And that can be a little bit like you kind of puff your chest out and look at me, I'm a, I'm a big deal. Yeah. But honestly, that is where you're, uh, you, you hope they become facilitators and not gatekeepers. Yeah. And when somebody in sales needs access to the player, to the driver, the, the PR people, people should be helping get that access, not putting up roadblocks to keep you from getting that access. And I think that when, if the PR people are operating correctly, they should be asking the salespeople, what do you need a story about now? Yeah. And and if you came to me or to one of our PR people and said, I really need something about, I don't know, financial technology right now or something, yeah. then they could take a, a, a player and or a driver and try to do a story that's about them and technology and whatever. And then you could take that story, hey, look at what you're just by chance happened in the USA Today today. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it works, how it should work. Um, Motorsports or not, or sports or not, is there a brand or a team that is doing PR right that you've been watching for a while that you can point to and say they really have it dialed in as, as, as far as what my, my views well, are? Well, I think one of the ones that is impressive to me, and I don't know uh, Raymond, their, their, their head of communications. I, I've known him indirectly because he, he, he was in LA as well. But the Golden State Warriors, but I, but from what I see from afar is that from the top, from the ownership down, those players are told that they represent the company and that they are brand ambassadors. And when, when that comes from the top down, it's so much easier for the PR people to get a Steph Curry, and he seems like, from all intents and purposes of just being around here in Davidson yep. and, and, and meeting him and stuff, is that he's just a good guy. But also, when it comes from the top down, that this is what you're required to do, right. it's pretty darn impressive what the Golden State Warriors are able to do. And from people that I've spoken to there, they do a really good job of getting these players out, meet with sponsors, to out into the community, doing a lot of different things. Yep. And again, Ray Ritter, who's been there for a long time, um, we probably know each other indirectly from our time in LA, but I, I don't know him uh, personally. Yeah. Um, so dealing with the media was a big part of your job. Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom with uh, for dealing with the media? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the tough part is you want to try to be as accommodating as you can to the media, but but it's not always it's not always apparent to everyone that we have a job to do and they have a job to do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they don't, <laughs> they don't ma match up really well because one of the things I could say that I honestly learned, and I learned it from Peter O'Malley, the former owner of the Dodgers, is that no media person 
in racing or in, in baseball where I was before will ever get a call from me to complain about a story, a negative story, if it's true. Yep. And I have to be able to ask myself, is that true or not? And I remember when I first started with Gassy, one of the PR people came to me and said, well, I think we're going to have to cut this person off. And, and they gave me a story, and it was a pretty hard story, and I won't say who it was about, but and, and I highlighted like six or seven things that were pretty negative. But I went back to that person and said, which of these seven things are inaccurate? And the person said, well, none. I said, we can't be mad. You can't be mad at <laughs> right. that if they're not, right. if they're now, they will get a call from me if what's printed is wrong. It's factually wrong or it takes liberties and, and uses stuff out of context. Then they would. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, in general, if you're honest with media, they respect it. And so there's a lot of times like I, I'll call any media person back for almost anything. But if it's something that I have to announce later that day or the next day, yeah. they just won't get a call back from me because I won't say yeah. we're not. Right. I won't lie. So it's kind of that game that you play. And if you're the media person, you go, okay, he's not getting back to me. Chances are this is true, but they're, they're getting no like confirmation that it's true. And so you, you taught me this. And um, so explain the value of the statement off the record and how you use that to build relationships with the media while not quote unquote, spilling the beans or saying something you shouldn't. Because I think it was quite a dance you had to do at times. Well, yeah. That is that is something that you could really only use with beat writers, I think. Okay. Because if you don't know the media person you're dealing with and they don't know you, I'm not sure I would trust just saying, okay, this is off the record. Yep. Now, beat writers, it's a give and take with beat writers because they need you and you need them. And so there's a lot of beat writers where Everything we, we talk about is off the record until we say it's on the record. Yeah. Start off with it's off the record. Mm -hmm. And most beat writers understand that. And they, they recognize that in order to understand the full story, mm -hmm. it has to be off the record. Because if they wait for only what you're willing to tell them publicly, they may not get the full picture. And, and, and in a lot of cases, um, that is difficult for them. So if they can understand the big picture, but here's what I'm going to tell you. I think it's a win-win where we could make them kind of understand and they then understand in the way that they couch it or the way they write it. Yeah. And, and I think that the other thing is also is one of the things that, and this is very reactive, and I think there's a lot of teams that probably do it very well, that PR people don't get credit for is all the stuff nobody ever sees. And, and whether that is helping a writer out with something so they don't write something that is inaccurate that was going to get written or you get a, um, an athlete back with the writer to clarify something that was negatively going to be written. Mm -hmm. Hey, why don't you guys get back together and talk and he could clarify what he meant. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of that. We, you know, we have a, a, a person or did when with Ganassi that, that he was amazing at it. Kelby uh, Krause was he did a <laughs> he did a ton of that stuff that you never ever would see mm -hmm. and only me would would see and know how he prevented something from happening yep. uh, from a story being written so there's a lot of things out also i don't i don't think anybody ever knows that that goes on or mm -hmm. that happens and so pitching media 
-hmm. So whether it's you're pitching a driver story, a sponsor story, whatever you're pitching, what what are you looking for? Do you have your go-to top three or four outlets that you want to go to all the time? Or do you really take whatever the thing you have to pitch and look for the right placement? Because now with the proliferation of social media, like there's YouTubers that cover NASCAR that get hundreds of thousands of views a week just for kind of reporting the news. So they have an audience. So how do you balance an AP writer versus Joe Schmo on YouTube who nobody knows, but actually there's a lot of people that watch him. I, I think you have to take every single individual story opportunity, take them one at a time yep. and what makes the most sense for this. Yep. And I think there is unequivocally those big places you would like to be. You would like to be in the Associated Press. It goes a lot of, it goes to a lot of different places. And with the shrinking of staff writers, mm -hmm. the AP goes to a lot more places than it even did 10 years ago. Yep. Um, but New York Times, Washington Post, the USA Today, I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's, you know, yep. that 10 or so that you really would always like to be in. Yep. But some things are better served being in sports business journal or someplace smaller, but it's, it's targeted to the right people you want to hear the message. Yep. And so, um, it could be non-endemic publications. That's, that's the right place to put something and with more readers or, you know, yep. so it's all over the place. There is no hard stead, steadfast rule, yep. but, um, but everyone, but this is the thing. And this is why I was saying earlier about finding people who think is you don't just automatically go and say, oh, all right, I'm pitching this to the person that covers us every day. Yep. That, that may be right, but it may not be right. And that you have to think about each of the individual opportunities and go, what's gonna make the most impact for right. us as a brand or our sponsor, even more importantly, yep. or you know, whoever, or the athlete themselves. Okay, so um, getting back to the thinking comment, mm -hmm. um, and while we were at the team when we uh, hired Larson, uh, he needed a PR person. And I remember specifically that several times you said, I do not want to hire a, a quote unquote PR person that's been through the, the same uh, process of racing and just regurgitated and passed through. You want to find someone different and you want to find someone who could think. So can you tell me, and you ended up hiring Davis, which motorsports PR, he was a zero, like no background at all but you hired him based on what? Can you tell me like what his profile was and what gravitated towards him? Because he ended up knocking it out of the park. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, it's not that I never hire people from in, within the industry. I just, maybe it's arrogance. <laughs> say or, it, or say or it. <laughs> maybe it's arrogance or something, but I, I, I feel like I would rather have somebody that, that is smart that doesn't yet have any PR skills that I could teach them the way that I think it should be done mm -hmm. rather than unteaching something else first to get to the teaching of the way I want it done. So in Davis's case, um, or with Larson, I wanted a talented PR person that could grow with Larson. And he was only 19, I think when we signed him mm -hmm. and a year in Xfinity. So he's 20 when he gets in the cup and, um, so I started interviewing people and, and this, I, I met him inadvertently. Uh, one of our, I think one of our crew chiefs actually said, oh, Hey, yeah, they're buddies. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. friends and said, Hey, you want, you might want to talk to this guy. And, and I'm certainly not afraid of people that don't. And going back to what Chip said to me, you, you, Hey, I'm not afraid that you don't have experience. I feel like you could help us. Right. So yeah, Davis was a, was a, is a lawyer and was a, um, a person that was a, a lobbyist in DC. 
and a thinker. And so that was kind of what attracted me to want to hire him. And um, he was amazing for Larson for, you know, six, seven years, however long Larson or Kyle was with us. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, explain the Indy 500 to me. What, what is that event like? I've, I've heard you explain it several times to other people, and I think it's, it's really cool because you mostly come from uh, traditional sports. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I'll say, and no offense to anybody in NASCAR, <laughs> it is the coolest sporting event I've ever been to. Yeah. And, and that's Super Bowls and NCAA championships, Final Fours, and, and the hockey, hockey championships, NHL championships, and, and basketball as well, and the Masters and everything. But now, granted... I'm with the team for a lot, a lot of years and we got to win a number of them of them. But that feeling when you walk out gasoline alley and you're looking up a mile left and right, the front stretch yep. and the stands are right on top of the track. They're stacked like an old baseball stadium, like Wrigley yep. field or Fenway park. And you, then you walk out onto the track where they grid the cars. It is such a, a an experience it is race and racing in general i gotta say it's such an experiential sport because no other sport can you be standing next to the star during the anthem and you know like you could be to scott dixon right before the indy 500 starts and scott will talk to you say hello and you know Mm -hmm. whatever Brad, I like you, but you're never going to be standing next to Tom Brady before he runs out onto the field for the uh, for the Super Bowl. Yeah. And and I think that that experience at the Indy 500, with all the traditions and everything that goes along with it, yeah. it it's really just second to none. Yeah. And I have two brothers: one who is a non-sports fan completely, and one who is a crazy, rabid sports fan. Never been to a race. Yeah come to the Indy 500 and they're blown away. Yeah. Blown away. That was, by the that was the one year they were both there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that was fun. And, and taking someone to any race, uh, let alone that race for the first time is always, it, it's just, it's so cool. Right. <laughs> it, it really, it really truly is. So, um, you're starting a new gig moving forward. Why don't you tell people like, uh, what, what your intentions are with that, um, uh, new company you've started. Up? Yeah. So what I really want to do is be able to help people see a different way of looking at some elements of, of sports. And that really being, I'm, I'm going to focus on PR, which is really my main background, which is what I would call myself as a PR person, but marketing, um, activation, digital, and, and sales at, at even some level. Right. Um, and to give them just a different way to look at things. And maybe there already are, Maybe they are in these three elements, but they're not in these two, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, because I'm not necessarily, I'm wanting to help people build. I want PR and marketing, everything to get better across the board. Mm-hmm. And I, and I have a passion for doing that and I want to help create for teams yep. and whether they're in baseball, football, basketball, hockey, racing, um, even a brand. Um, again, I, as I said earlier, I've had the luxury of working with some really big brands yep. and understanding how they do things as well. Yeah. And so one final question, if you end up working, staying in sports, whether that's motorsports or not, would you rather work for a team or work for an entity that has a very outspoken, controversial athlete 
or would you rather work for an organization that's pretty even keel and doesn't really rock the boat? Well, I, I, I think the, your first part of that is controversial. I, I'm not into controversy for controversy's sake. Uh-huh. I think if somebody is smart and honest and they're really good at what they're doing and it causes discomfort, I am 100% fine with that. <laughs> right. But not because they say dumb things yeah. and because they just don't know what's going to come out of their mouth and then they start speaking and then something comes out and you have to walk that back. You have to right. fix it. You have to do whatever. No interest in that. I mean, now, granted, that, hell, that gives PR people work. Right. I mean, you know, when you, when you have to deal with crisis. Um, but I think that um, I would prefer the first one where there is some work involved. I, I'm not interested in coasting, you know, or anything yeah. like that. However, in both cases, you can do as much or little as you want. Yeah. And I am all for doing as much as you possibly can and telling your story in every step of the way. Yeah. And whether that's, like I said, internal or external, both you need to build your brand by telling your story. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, it, it was it was such a diverse uh, department when we were at Ganassi of how it all fit together and how it all worked together. And I never really went into it thinking, oh, I need a PR person or I need a PR department to do that. It just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, uh, we had a big team uh, externally, but internally we had a very small team, very lean team. And uh, you end up kind of overlapping with some really good overlaps and it just kind of all works out. And that, that trickles down to building the culture and building, it's, it, it was all a really positive experience. And I think, I think to your point earlier, I think a lot of people overlook the importance of having that in their organization, regardless of what they're selling or regardless of what sport they're in. Well, I think though, the one thing is that that is, I don't think that was by accident right. um, by any stretch. And I think that is, you have to have some leaders that are wanting to do that. Right. And, and and I've said it to you, I've said it to everybody, leadership isn't from a title. Leadership is from within, right. and you, you can be a leader at the bottom of the organization, you can be a leader at the top of the organization. Yep. And, it, and it's about wanting to lead, yep. and that's it. And so um, I think that that was a definitive thing that we tried to accomplish. It didn't right. always work, but I think in general, it was uh, better more, more often than not. Yeah. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the easiest way? Are you LinkedIn? LinkedIn right now. We're yep. working on website, working on, on um, a new email addresses and things like that. But yep. it's Olgin John at Yahoo. And then uh, for now, and um, obviously on my LinkedIn, certainly. Cool. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Brad. That was fun. Thanks.